The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. He's been called the greatest CEO of our time. I wouldn't say I'm the best CEO. I've seen some really, really good CEOs in my life. So I asked technology executive and venture capitalist Alfred Chuang, what makes a good CEO? Humility is the biggest thing. So once you become cocky and you think that you're so full of yourself, that will be the beginning of the end. Welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today was born in Hong Kong. He went on to live the American dream. He attended college in the U.S., worked for Sun Microsystems, founded BEA Systems. He's the A in BEA and became a venture capitalist. Earlier this year, he launched a fund, Race Capital, which focuses on tech startups created for a post-pandemic world. Chuang describes some of the changes he expects to see. Clearly, education is going to change. In-classroom teaching is going to be a thing of the past shares his thoughts on the future of Hong Kong. Every country is entitled to national security and worry about their national security. And I think the Chinese have every right to worry about Chinese security. And and by the way, there's no argument. Hong Kong is part of China. So Mm -hmm. we, we must accept that, right? And talks about why diversity is key to Silicon Valley success. That's the fundamentals of how Silicon Valley got built. If they're not from China, they're from India. I, I have to tell you, if we lose them, we're going to be losing 30%, 40% of innovation in technology in our country. So th- this will kill the place. Here's my wide-ranging conversation with Alfred Chuang. Welcome to Out of Office. Thank you. We've all been living in a rather strange time with various degrees of lockdown. How's that been going for you? I have to admit, actually, life is great. I actually don't mind it as much as people would think. (laughs) And I will say, um, because the sheltering um, kind of um, restrictions that we have in the Silicon Valley, is generally it's been pretty tight. So I haven't really gone out much of anything at all. I'm very productive. I'm like... Since I got, um, started this uh, new Race Capitalist Fund, I've yes. seen 138 companies since the lockdown in February. Really? So I know if in person, that wouldn't have happened. And I think this whole um, lockdown, this whole pandemic has kind of shifted everybody to decentralize the way that they work. Through the decentralization, I met people from all over the world, companies that I wouldn't consider investing now because it no longer matters where they are. 
So I will be seeing them. I actually just actually saw a company, a very intriguing company, collaboration from South Africa. And, really? uh, and the team is based in Cape Town and Johannesburg. So, and I didn't know until like 35 minutes into the meeting. I finally asked, I said, where are you? He said, oh, I'm in Joburg in, in South Africa. Oh, really? And that was really, that was really is incredible. And I finally have to explain to my partner, I said, do you know how to get to Joburg? I said, no. I said, you first spend 10 hours flying to London, then you have a layover, and then you have to fly another 10 or 11 hours to get to Johannesburg. So it's he said, it's really far. It's yeah. really far. I said, and I said, and I was there just like that, you know, and have a meeting with the guy. So it was, uh, it was really good. So I, I always say I adjust it better than most people. Yeah. So that's really interesting. You're saying for you, it's actually brought the world closer. Yes. Now, speaking of an interconnected world, I'm speaking to you from Hong Kong, which is one of your home cities. It's where you grew up, where your mother still lives. And Hong Kong has had a challenging year for several reasons, not just because of COVID. We've had the protests, we've had the implementation of a new security law. What do you feel? What are your thoughts about Hong Kong's future? Actually, I've been quite involved. Normally, I'm in Hong Kong 46 times a year. So obviously, since mm-hmm. December, I haven't been. But um, so I witnessed the whole protest from the very beginning and even the one that was before. Right. So the Occupy Hong Kong thing, I saw that and then it stopped and then we have the recent one. And to me, it was, um, you know, very heartfelt, very sad to see kind of Hong Kong turn into, you know, you would never imagine Hong Kong as a place where we'll have people that will occupy the street and will have riots and will have, and then the police will have to use tear gas and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and uh, so like, I think the last couple of trips I was there, one was back in October and then was also in uh, December. So I said, no, I need to know more. So ended up what I did was uh, I spent time doing several things. I said, well, I need to hear directly from the students, right? Because that's what's supposed to be a movement from the students up. So I just serendipitously, I just happened to run into the principal of um, the grade school that I went to in a reunion with my classmates and ran into the principal. I didn't know the principal from before. So I asked him, I said, well, is it possible that I can come visit? He said, of course, we'd love to have you. So instead of meeting with um, five or 10 students, which I was hoping to do, which is in high school, I ended up, I met with a very large number of them. So, and it was supposed to be a 20 minutes meet and greet. And I actually ended up, you know, was with them for over two hours. And subtly, I, I knew what they were talking about. So they worry about their future. What did you learn from them? Oh, it's, the it's, actually, it's actually quite simple. So over 80% of the asset in Hong Kong is owned by 20 families. Yes. So, and these kids are in the best school in Hong Kong, and they likely, most of them will go to really the top university. And now almost everyone in Hong Kong can get a university education, which is really good news. Okay. It's not that case when I was there, when I was growing up. And on top of that, they said, well, you know, I can easily get a graduate degree. And, and you know, I'm, I'm associated and I'm on one of the committee at the University of Science and Technology. It's a wonderful research university, top notch, world class. And you can get a graduate education there also. And they said, what I don't want to end up be doing is after all of that, my life will end up be a management intern with one of those 20 families in the real estate business. And then ended up what I will be doing is struggle all my life is to be able to buy an apartment. That become my life. So that struggle is really, it's, an, it's a big dark cloud right behind their head. They think about that all the time. So I said, well, then we have to find a way out. So I said, so we have to find new business because if Hong Kong's locked into real estate, 
and yeah. the finance business, that means we have to go into new business. I said, look at the place I live in the Silicon Valley. This is every second, every minute business are being born. Almost systematically, the whole place, all you hear, it's just about startups, doing a new company, having a new idea, changing the world. So I said, that's what Hong Kong really needs. And I can see where uh, the people are frustrated. You can see why mm -hmm. people think the future is in doubt. When you have all of that from the young people coming up, you, you can see what happened happened. So I think this is, these are things that are fixable, but it's going to need a very concerted effort from many angles to go fix it. Um, but but I think it, it, I'm I'm a I'm a optimistic guy, so I think it's fixable. I really do. Yeah. I hope so. I've lived in Hong Kong for four years now, and uh, I do. It's a lovely I, place, isn't it? Yeah. It is a beautiful place, and yeah, I do hope that things stabilize and settle down soon. So I'm optimistic as you are. <laughs> you also mentioned security laws, so I want to address it directly. Every country is entitled to national security and worry about the national security. And I think the Chinese have every right to worry about Chinese security. And, it is, and by the way, there's no argument. Hong Kong is part of China. So mm -hmm. we, we must accept that, right? So this, this is something that we cannot waver. And I, I tell you my personal um, experience. When I was growing up in Hong Kong, it was a colony, right? This is way before it was returned back to, um, to the Chinese. And it's always ambiguous, right? So when you travel and you explain to people, so where are you from? He said, oh, I'm from Hong Kong. I said, so Hong Kong is part of, and he said, I don't know, because we're not really British, right? Our, right. our passport will say you have no rights to, you know, abode in, in, in England. So I said that passport is not useful in England, right? I'm not really right. Chinese because I never be, even be in there, even though we live right on the border. So right. I said, so I've always felt it's ambiguous, right? So it's difficult to be patriotic when you can't really know that. So I think being patriotic is critical, right? So you know where you belong. So I think, mm -hmm. I think that part is now clear that Hong Kong is part of China. Now, right. I, I, think, I think there's no reason for the Chinese uh, to, to mess up Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a very important place to them. So, so I think mm -hmm. people are overreacting to a lot of speculation of what they may, may or may not do. Or oh, I might not have access to Google anymore. I might not have access to Facebook. I think those are very premature uh, speculation. Um, and I, I think that's going to need a lot more work from various people in the government and also in the private sector to clarify where it stands. Right now, there's just so much rhetoric going on between the US and China and the Hong Kong sandwich yeah. in the middle. Yeah. I think all of that over time, will get, we will see clarity. And I think why sweat about this stuff when you really have no control of it, right? And some of the things is going to happen. And, and the other thing is, I personally don't believe China is a place that is non-negotiable, right? And that's <laughs> going to need some diplomacy and understanding and Hong Kong is a perfect place for them to incubate and experiment what, you know, it's already one country to system anyway, right? To experiment things where it doesn't touch on national security of having a freedom of continue to evolve what the policies and its politics is going to be like. So I'm hopeful with that too. Now you left Hong Kong as a young boy and you were supposed to go to the US, but you ended up in Canada instead. What happened? It was a heartbroken uh, event that happened to me. So what had happened was um, nobody coached me. So I actually, interesting, I got accepted to a high school called the Bellman um, College Prep. It's in San Jose, <laughs> California. So mm -hmm. of all the places I study up, I was a young teenager. I said, that's it. That's my destiny. That's the place I want to go to as a boarding school. 
So I was um, going to Wayan College, which is a Jesuit uh, uh, high school in Hong Kong. So that would mm-hmm. be the perfect place for me to go to. It's all boys. I don't know why I would choose an all boys program, but it, it sounded logical at the time. <laughs> I went to an all girls school, yes. They accepted me um, and I got in. So then the next step was supposed to be a very simple step, which is you take the acceptance letters and then you walk into the US consulate, right? And you get a visa, F1 visa. Mm-hmm. And nobody coached me. I walked in and I thought um, the immigration officer sitting on the side of the window asked some very tricky question. She asked me a question to say, well, um, so I suppose this is a high school. So when you graduate from high school, you think you're going to stay to, to go to college in the U.S.? I said, yes, of course, right? Oh, right. And visa officers don't want to hear that. So I said, and then graduate school? I said, well, I don't know about that. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a kid. So I said, but given the opportunity, obviously, um, I would try to get as much education as humanly can. So I said, right. maybe. I said, well, what if you're given the opportunity to go work and practice your, your trade? I said, of course I will. She said, eh, that's it. That's the end. Oh, you were just being honest. You were just I said, by the way, kids, don't ever come back. You're done. So you're never going to get a visa again. Let me read my lips, okay? So you're finished. So I wow. walked out of the place in tears. I said, what has just happened to me? So I told my mom. My mom said, well, what do you say? I said, well, I said, given the right opportunity, I'm going to stay. And she said, well, that's the wrong answer. I said, well, nobody told me that. Okay. So, um, yeah. So that's how I ended up in Canada instead. Yeah. You know, it's funny how life works out, right? So you ended up in Canada, but then again, when you were on your way back to Asia, you had a layover in California, which turned out to be permanent. Well, it's actually, this is really a serendipity story because I ended up, um, I ended up uh, like, so I ended up in high school in Aurora, Ontario, which is in the East Coast. It's a terrific high school, St. Clark St. Andrews. And then uh, in the summer, so I was uh, traveling from Toronto through San Francisco back to Hong Kong um, on Singapore Airlines flight. So go, when I got to San Francisco, it just so happened the U.S. has grounded all the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 aircrafts. So, and that was the only aircraft that Singapore Airlines had. So it was a total mayhem. So if I, 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 I got stuck here. I called my mom, right? So I have nowhere to go. I, hadn't, I didn't have any money. So my mom said, well, let me call a cousin, a long lost cousin to see if I can contact him. Maybe you can spend a little time with them until you can get back on flight, maybe a night or two. So it turns out the world's just that small. Their oldest daughter, the eldest daughter, turned out to be the agent at Singapore Airlines. She was the person I was talking to. So I ended up, I got a ride from her, get to their house. Instead of spending a day, I was there for two weeks because it was grounded for that long. And then she took me around, Dorothy, she was just the nicest person in the world. And we were, happened to be driving around uh, in San Francisco. And they said, well, I said, what is this? They said, oh, this is University of San Francisco. It's a great school. So we went and walked around and they said, well, why don't you apply? So I said, no, 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 no. I said, well, I'm not qualified. So we literally walk into the admission office. I fill out a form and I got accepted. Really amazing. So, so I said, well, but, but. This is a joke because they're not going to give me a visa. I've talked to this immigration officer and I'm never going to get a visa. So the people on the other side of the admission table, the counter, they said, I have a way. So I said, what's the way? I said, well, take this. So she took out a box and said, go to this place. And she said, Calgary. Okay. And I said, just go to Calgary. So how do I get to Calgary? Let's take a flight. Okay. It's an hour and a half. So go to Calgary, go to the U.S. consulate in Calgary, talk to Bob. Hand him this box of chocolate and this form. Really? And then, and then 
he stamped my passport, and that's it, I got a visa. And that's how I got started. I went to uh, University of San Francisco. It uh, only took me three years, and I got a, a degree in computer science. And that's also when I switched from my interest in, in studying to be a doctor. Oh, you wanted to be a doctor? Asian family, right? So my sister is a lawyer, my younger right. brother is an architect, so obviously I need to be a doctor. My dad's an accountant. So, and, um, and so I, I didn't do any of that. I said, I, got, I fell in love with computer science. And my dad said, you know, those people don't make any money. So I said, well, I, I don't care. So I, I did it anyway. And then uh, I went to graduate school at UC Davis, which um, I got a, um, uh, uh, what did they call that? Um, I got a free ride. So I didn't have to pay really? any tuition. Yeah, I got a scholarship. So Amazing. the whole thing was paid for, and the graduate student actually got paid for doing the work. And then, um, I, so I, then I ended up, I did all the stuff that I said I was not going to do. You ended up doing. I ended up doing. <laughs> I, had, I got a job offer from Sun, and they said, I said, but, but I'm a student. I said, don't worry about it. We get a visa for you. And they said, if you want to stay, we get a green card for you. So they did all that. It's not just H-1B, but even student visas. It looks like student visas now, you know, for any young kid in Hong Kong or frankly anywhere else in the world who wants to go study in the U.S., it's getting harder and harder and harder. And if you look at people like yourself who have changed the face of Silicon Valley, it's not just yourself, but if you look at the CEOs of, say, Microsoft or Google, they're all people like you, you know, who sort of went to America to pursue an American dream, and that may not be available to a lot of young kids around the world now. This is very unfortunate, I think. I think um, there really is, there's no place for politics in education. But unfortunately, it has become an agenda for politics now in education. Because this, you know, it, it, the math is very simple. There's just a little bit over a million um, F1 visa students in the U.S. at this point. So we've been mm -hmm. hovering around that number, but 1.1 million. It's, a, it's, a general, it's, about, it's, a, it's about the number of students that granted the visa to come to the U.S. 40% of that are from China, right? It's the largest community. They also have been the most successful ones uh, in the U.S. If you look at it, they are the, they are the disproportionately large number of graduate students that in the Ph.D. programs are from China which also means they're the smartest. So you go look at the Berkeley, the MIT, the Stanford. I mean, we're littered with very, very the smartest Chinese graduate students. I think the politics is now that we assume um, a lot of them are spying for China, which is the most ludicrous thing that you can imagine that what they are doing. Um, right. I met a lot of them. I mentor a lot of them. The, the, the brightest mind that I've seen uh, from these schools and actually, we're looking at an investment of extracting a technology out of one of these schools into a, into a commercial project. And three out of the five graduate students are from China, right? They yeah. must be the smartest people I've ever met. By the way, that's the fundamentals of how Silicon Valley got built. If they're not from China, they're from India, okay? <laughs> right. So, so I, I have to tell you, if we lose them, we're going to be losing... 30%, 40% of innovation in technology in our country. So th this will kill the place. So, yeah. th and I, I just don't think that people that are involved in the politics understand the ramification of what would have happened downstreams. Not just one year, two year, three years, but 10 years from now, right? Because we're in a crisis, we're in a pandemic, right? So clearly technology is gonna enable the world to change to a far more automated place 10 years out. So we think, 
the dot-com bubble was interesting and it brought e-commerce and the internet to us, which it is indispensable. And then the last generation brought us SaaS, cloud, the mobile phone, the touch phone, and the whole gig economy, right? Social network was all came just in the last 12 years. It's all happened in the last 12 years. I think the next 10 is gonna be multiple times of the last two generations innovation combined. Then that's gonna need, if we lose 30% of that, we will no longer be the leader. It's just how, it's just how the math works, right? This is, you can literally right. use data to derive what will happen to American technological innovations 10 years out if we just sanction and don't let the international students to be here. They're such a big part of that program, right? It's so important, right? And as you said, then what would have happened to Microsoft, Google, and all of these leading companies littered with these ex-students that were here before, right? that have, and how much revenue have they generated for our economy, right? And the impact that they have made and the diversity they have driven into the place. It's, it's, you can't imagine what, what had happened, right? So I, I, think, I think that would be a huge mistake if we really continue to use that as an agenda in education. So I think, I think at least the students that are already here, to push them out of the country, that agenda has been taken off, we still, uh, on the agenda is, can the student come if their classes are not going to be in person, which is also ludicrous. So, and that is still being fought. And um, and I have confidence the right thing will happen because, you know, justice always prevails. So I think justice will prevail on, on this one also. Yeah. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. I want to talk a little bit about your current business, Race Capital. What is it you look for when you, when you decide to invest in a company and help build that company up? I think uh, the innovation economy is extraordinarily vibrant, but there is um, an interesting demarcation. So, and I've seen this before. So anytime when you have a crisis, whether it is the 2000, April 2000 dot-com bubble bursting, which then reset it, um, People thought technology was done, right? Internet was over. It didn't, right? It's actually gotten so much bigger. That's right. But each time when there's a reset, then really there's new light. So then you have mm-hmm. entrepreneurs that, um, like, which, is, which is how we run this fund. We run this fund like it's a software company. So mm-hmm. uh, we set a 10 years plan of what the world should look like. Now, many things are going to change, clearly. Um, we probably are not going to go back to the world we come from. This decentralized yeah. of working, decentralized way of working is going to stay here. Now, it's right. not like we're never going to be congregating, socializing, meeting people, but it will be different. The purpose of those meetings, 
clearly will be different from the way that we used to take advantage of. We just go to a place and work all day long, but we may not talk to many people. But in the future, it'd be much more purposeful. But then we can right. do the rest of our work anywhere that we want to, right? I, I think really the world is going to be much more like journalism in the future. That you can you can you can write incredible article, you can do incredible right. interview anywhere in the world. Soon, I think our work will be done that way. So technology company mm -hmm. and other industries is going to be the same. So what, what what are the things we're going to see changing? Clearly, education is going to change. In classroom teaching is going to be a thing of the past, right? And many of the schools that cannot change will likely go away. So I've been predicting 30% of the colleges in the U.S. will likely go out of business, right? And new, 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 oh yeah, new, new one will exist, right? Some will be get consolidated, and students will get probably better education going into the future. But we're going to need new, new tools. The tools that we have, Zoom is not a tool designed to go, take us to teleeducation. It's a mixture of tools. Thank goodness we have it, but we're going to need a whole lot more stuff. We gotta be able to have the teacher kind of like be much closer to the students, but without physical touching, right? So that's gonna need new software, new invention. Medicine's already changed, right? So, right. You, you know, in the US, it's the first time since we've invented HIPAA that we allow the doctor to basically get a special pass to say, it's okay that not everything has to be HIPAA compliant, you can still see your patient. So I can take a picture of my left eye, which I have glaucoma and fire off in Google picture and send my doctor an email. I said, my God, this is exactly how I wanted to see the doctor. My doctor would be able to see, place, yeah. see clear pictures of my eyes and a prescribed right. medication and then show up in my door. That's the way how we're gonna save life. That's how people are gonna live longer and a healthier life. Is we can, it's shortening the time, meantime that we needed to be able to see the doctor and be able to get treatment. So I think medicine is gonna change. Transportation clearly is gonna change, right? In what and, way? How do you foresee oh, that change? Oh, so like because the streets have been emptied out in the U.S., you, yes. you can see how many autonomous cars being tested. Because now the interaction is really just about pedestrians and automated car. So you can see in the future where in cities like Hong Kong, for example, right, mm -hmm. where it's hugely dense, when you're mixing automated and non-automated car, that's when you have accident because people are unpredictable, not software. So when you have only automated car and people, now all the people that are looking at their phone when they're crossing the street, I think we're gonna see a dramatic reduction in accident that's happening, right? So, 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 that's really so, so I can totally see people will block off 20 blocks radius in New York City and say, well, only autonomous car will be allowed. So autonomous bus, autonomous share ride, autonomous driven private vehicle will be only allowed within those 20 square blocks. So, and, and pedestrian. So autonomous car will have obviously a lot more awareness about pedestrian because it can see it through the LIDAR. And autonomous car can also know where the, the other autonomous cars are. So this will be the first time that we're gonna see an ability to be able to implement some of these things. So I think transportation will be drastically different. And obviously air travel is something that we worry about. It's gonna be yeah. needing, a, it's, it's been waiting for a reinvention anyway. So think about this, right? Flying to India, basically it's the same amount of time, pretty much the same program since it was in the 1960s. We've seen, yes. we've seen hardly nothing any, changed. We, nothing's changed. It's gonna need some change. So I think we have to see more efficient way of flying, safer for the people that are stuffed inside a recycling air aircraft, and many things that is gonna be improving in, in, in that way. And also, probably likely it's much faster time, that we, which is what we've been all looking for. 
but but there's no reason for them to change unless there's a crisis. Now there's a crisis. So I think many of these things are opportunity for us to improve the way that we live. Now I happen to be investing mostly in the infrastructure software to support okay. those changes, right? So it's really truly it's exciting. So there is a clear demarcation to see post-pandemic companies versus pre-pandemic company. Because now, given yeah. where we are, people rapidly rethink, what do I have to do to service the world that's coming at us? Because the purpose is different. The goal is different. Totally, in to- totally. I want to go back in time a little bit. So after Sun Microsystems, you founded BEA Systems. You are the A in BEA. And then, uh, of course, very famously, the company was bought out by Oracle for $8.5 billion. You could have retired then, <laughs> but you went on to become a serial entrepreneur. You launched Magnet, uh, and you're you know, an investor. What drives you? You are a great journalist and um, people love to follow your work. And I think in the same way where this is really what I do, right? So you wake up in the morning, you say, well, um, do I see myself on a yard and just looking at the ocean? I just don't see you. I'm I'm not that kind of person. I mean, like I have hobbies that distracts me, but um, but I really enjoy technological innovation. And and I feel if I'm not um, keeping up with the up and comer young crowd, that I'm going to be missing out too much, right? Then life is going to be super boring. And mm-hmm. I, I, then I'm going to feel old and then I'm going to not going to be feel very useful. So, so to me, it's so crucial to look at really the state of the art stuff being invented and hearing how people are so excited and believing they're going to change the world, right? Some may, some may not, but it's just exciting to see that, that how fired up people are. So, so that's why I'm in it. You've been called the greatest CEO of our time. (laughs) Yes, that's a lofty title. It was very flattering, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, how does that title sit on your shoulders? But more importantly, what, according to you, makes a great CEO? Well, I think it was was a comment from Ben Horowitz. He was a great friend, and I think it was very flattering, and um, and he was just too kind. I, 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 I wouldn't say I'm the best CEO. I've seen some really, really good CEOs in my life, you know, and I, I admire them greatly, you know, like uh, Paul Lavini, who Paul used to be the CEO of Intel. You know, I've known very well, very good friend. He passed away. And he's one of the best CEOs around. And then every technology company, no matter how big you get, you're constantly pivoting. You know, and people ask me, so why that's the case? I say it's because that's how the program is designed. We, mm-hmm. Our stock option invests every four years for a reason. I don't think it's an accident because in four years, your technology almost don't matter no more. So if you are thinking about the next thing in four years' time, you'll be right behind. Somebody's going to catch up. And by the way, to, 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 to basically make you irrelevant is so easy in our industry. So many companies no longer exist, right? So it's put a lot of things on the shoulder of the CEO to be the leader of thinking, well, I can never get complacent. I can never get comfortable. It's time to pivot again. It's time to rethink. So not only you have to, and by the way, if you ever go public, now you have quarterly pressure to make earnings, right? Mm-hmm. And that's huge, right? So the people that invest in tech love tech because we have very high PE multiple for a reason, because we beat, we raise guidance, we beat, we raise guidance. But at the same time, you're saying, wow, in just you know four years, right? That's only 16 quarters. My company likely will be doing something totally different, right? And pivoting again. At the same time, I'm thinking about when I'm going to make a left turn at top speed, right? right. That's tough. And the bigger you get, it's harder to change. So, 
Right. They, so I think we have some incredible CEOs in our industry that have done some ma marvelous things that allow company to continue to pivot and do just the most incredible stuff in the world. It, it just, it's just so admirable. Look at Adobe, look at Nvidia. I mean, the list goes on. They're so big, yet they were able to do so many new things out of the box. It's so admirable. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. My last question is, what is the one value you admire the most in another business executive? Um, there's no doubt in my mind. For the people that are humble and still think that they don't know everything, that's the humility. biggest one. Humility is the biggest thing. So once you become cocky and you think that you're so full of yourself, that will be the beginning of the end. So the best CEO that I met, they're super humble. They're unassuming, right? And the whole time they're watching and learning and, and, and up, up, you know, like observing constantly. That's a very critical, very, very, very critical quality. I, I think it's because success come, also comes so quickly in the industry, right? And there's so many successful people. If you ever become complacent with your success, that is the beginning of the end. So I think that's, a, that's, that's one thing that when I spot somebody is so like carefully listening, that's one thing I admire immediately. That's a great note to end it on. Alfred, thank you so much. I have really, really enjoyed this chat. Thanks so much. That was Alfred Chuang speaking to me from Silicon Valley. I hope you enjoyed our chat as much as I did. Remember, Out of Office is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you usually find your podcasts. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspore. I'm Malika Kapoor. We'll be back in a week. Till then, stay well and thank you for listening. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.